You there. Welcome to the show. What show, you ask? Oh, just a little show we call 365 Honest Questions. Subtitle, About the Bible. Who am I, you ask? Oh, I'm just your host, Dante Stack. What do we do on this podcast? Oh, well, that's easy. We ask honest questions that arise from organic readings of the Old and New Testament of the Bible. And what question are we talking about today? Well, friends, as I promised you, after two very difficult subject matters, I promise you something fun, something happy, and so we're going to Atlantis. Is Atlantis real? Is Atlantis in the Bible? This is question 16. Here we go. Alright friends, so I tried to record this episode yesterday, and after like an hour and a half of talking to the microphone, I didn't feel like I led you anywhere, and so I'm scrapping that and trying again right now. And I've come to the conclusion that in order for this to work, or at least have some semblance of order and not just random chaos for 20 minutes, I need you to imagine one of those corkboard situations. Now, I'm talking about one of those situations where anytime you watch, like, one of those obsessive detectives trying to track down a serial killer, you know, they have these giant cork boards and then they're pinning pictures of suspects and then they're drawing lines or, or getting string to connect one picture to another and to this piece of evidence with this picture. I need you to mentally create one of those for me, okay? That's the only way I think we can keep all the random data and pieces of information in line, Okay. So pick a room in your house or pick a random room in the corners of your mind, go there, put up a corkboard, and be ready to fill up that corkboard with a random assembly of pieces of information. So I promise you from the bottom of my heart that this question came very organically for me this week. It wasn't that I was thinking about Atlantis or I watched a documentary on Atlantis and then thought, hmm, I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about that. No, sir, or madame. No, no, no. I've been reading through Ezekiel this past week, and I got to this one passage, and I'll read it now. So this is Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 19 through 21. For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a city laid waste, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you, and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. And I will make you to dwell in the world below, among ruins from of old, with those who go down to the pits, so that you will not be inhabited. But I will set beauty in the land of the living. I will bring you to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. Now when I read this prophecy, you know, I immediately thought, whoa. So there's this place that Ezekiel is prophesying the Lord's word over, that He's saying, you know, soon you're going to be covered up by water. I'm going to make you go down deep underwater and people will search for you, but be unable to find you. So to me, from the little I know about Atlantis fabledness, I thought, hey, that sounds like that could be an Atlantis situation. So for context here, Ezekiel is writing somewhere between 600 to 550 BC. Just keep that in your mind. We don't need to put that up on the board or anything. So we are looking for a biblical reference or a biblical understanding of Atlantis. So I want you to go to your imaginary cork board and at the very tippy top, just put the word Atlantis up there. All right, got it? Now everything's going to fall under Atlantis because we're trying to solve for X. We're trying to solve for Atlantis. Now, where do we traditionally know of Atlantis from? 
Well, that one's easy. That's from Plato. All this discussion about who or what or where or when Atlantis is, all is birthed from our reading of Plato. There's little, if nothing else, directly connected to Atlantis that we know of besides Plato's writings. Now, initially, I was going to have us read through two of the passages wherein Plato specifically talks about this place, Atlantis. Uh, Yesterday, I did that when I was recording, but that takes a long time. It's a little bit wordy and weighty, so you're just going to have to take my word for it here. Uh, I'll put up some links in the show notes. But as far as I can tell, I think there's five solid pieces of information about Atlantis that we can grab onto from Plato's talk of it. Now, Atlantis shows up in two different dialogues of Plato. First, the Timaeus, and then later, the Critias. And pretty much what's talked about there of Atlantis is what we generally think of when we conjure up images of Atlantis. So here are the five things. Now, write these down on little pieces of paper and put them up on your corkboard, all horizontally in a line under Atlantis. We know Atlantis is old. It's an ancient society. That's one. Two, it was wealthy, very wealthy. Plato talks about it also having a conglomeration of kings going there. So wealth and power as two. Three, it was an island seafaring people. Atlantis is very clearly stated as a giant island, very big. Uh, Plato actually says it's more like a continent than an island. And because of this, the people that live there are very well trained and educated in shipbuilding and seafaring and trade and that sort of thing. Four, it was destroyed by some sort of natural disaster. It was a little unclear from what I read whether Plato was suggesting that that was an earthquake or just some sort of tidal wave situation. But at any rate, a natural disaster sunk the island. And point five is that the god of the seas, Poseidon himself, was given rulership over specifically Atlantis in the beginning of the division of the world, according to Hellenic tradition. Okay, so one more time. The five things put up on the corkboard. Facts we know about Atlantis from Plato. One, it was really old. It was an ancient civilization, and that's obviously predating the Greeks, who themselves are pretty old. Two, it was a wealthy, wealthy, powerful place. Three, it was an island full of seafaring people. Four, a natural disaster took it out. Five, apparently Poseidon was the sea god over Atlantis. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, the word Atlantis doesn't show up in the Bible anywhere. If it did, then I think we would all probably be aware of that, just because a popular culture would circulate it, and this myth that Plato started would certainly exponentially be greater. So, if it shows up in the Bible, it's going to have to be under some different name. Now, that might seem, at first, disingenuous in some way, or like, okay, how can that be? A place is a place is a place. But I'm reminded of the possible exception from when I was a missionary in Slovenia. The word for Germany in the Slovenian tongue is Nemčia. Now, I was really surprised to hear this because, A, it doesn't sound anything like our English word for Germany. B, it doesn't sound like the German word for Germany, Deutschland. C, it doesn't sound like the Spanish word for Germany, Alemania. So when I learned that, I really started to scratch my head and realized that, you know, specifically when we're talking about nations or you're talking about peoples, often it's the people that encounter them that are naming them for themselves. So if the Egyptians go in and visit the Atlantisian people, they're going to come away saying probably some Egyptian word for 
sea people. Whereas if the Assyrians go, they're going to come up with a different word. The Phoenicians go, they're going to come up with a different word. In Slovenia, they came up with Nemčia and Nemets for a German person because when they first heard the German people speaking, apparently to the Slovene ears, it was like a, a low guttural muttering language. So they called them the mute ones because it almost sounded as if they weren't talking at all. Obviously, the rest of the world didn't take that description or didn't have that same experience with the Germans that Slovenes did. So other nations name Germany off based off of other things. So keep that in mind as we're about to look for biblical evidences of Atlantis. Well then, Dante, how are we going to find Atlantis in the Bible if we can't use the word Atlantis? Well, my friends, how about we look for a place that has the same five facts about it that Plato talks about Atlantis having? Does that sound reasonable? If we can find a place that is extremely old, was full of wealthy people, was an island of seafaring people, was doomed by some sort of great natural disaster that made it sink into the sea, and was ruled by the god Poseidon, then we should be, I don't know if completely confident, but certainly semi-confident or have reason on our side to think, okay, maybe the Bible's actually talking about Atlantis here, right? Does that sound reasonable? I hope so. So let's see if we can match up these five facts with a place in the Bible. Oh, but one note about this search first before we get into it. Now, to me, if Atlantis is just a regular old place, like a Minoan-type settlement, a pre-Greek civilization, and there's nothing special about them besides that, you know, they were destroyed by a natural disaster, that's, I guess, historically it's interesting, but it's not personally very interesting. I think I've said this before on this podcast, but I'll restate it here again. I have this hypothesis that the world used to be, for lack of a better description, far weirder than it is now. And I base that belief based off of some biblical language that shoots up here and there, but also because experience dictates our worldview so strongly. You know, God shows up in the Bible to different generations in different ways. In Genesis 1-1, it talks about him being, you know, the spirit hovering over the world. Then in Exodus, when God shows himself to Moses, he's a burning bush. He reveals himself in this weird burning bush type of way. In other passages, it's the angel of the Lord, this more spirit-looking creature. Then, of course, we have Jesus, the Son of God, God himself incarnate as a person, show up. So if you're a follower of the Judeo-Christian God, then you can see evidences of how God expresses himself or how he displays himself to humanity in quite different ways at different points in time. Now, why does that matter? Why does that lead me to hypothesize that the world may have been much stranger than we think it was? So I was thinking about that. I was thinking if there was an illustration I could come up with to make my point. And this is the best I came up with. Imagine if tomorrow, the whole world over, we all woke up to a purple haze. In every bedroom, in every pasture, in every ocean, there was this purple haze everywhere. And they report it in Japan, they report it in Russia, they report it in South America, and we in the States report it. And stranger still, a voice speaks out of the purple haze. And that voice clearly says, I am God. I am that I am. And just to make it weirder, let's say he says it somehow in each of our minds, but not audibly. You know, the way aliens always do in movies. Let's imagine that the purple haze God speaks that way, and he says he's the God of the Bible and all that. But then we all go to bed that night, and the next day we wake up the world over, and the purple haze is gone. Our experience of God is over. But since it happened to all seven billion of us living on the world, we all feel firmly convinced that our interaction, our experience, was bona fide, genuine, real. And let's say, for the sake of argument, we all, seven billion of us, go to our grave believing that on that one day we experienced God. Now that's all well and good, but imagine how that translates to the next generation, the generation that's born the day after the purple haze came. 
How do we describe that event to them? Well, there's enough of us around, and there's enough conviction among all of us that I bet we convinced that second generation that what we encountered was real. But what about the third generation, the fourth generation, the fifth generation? The further we get away from it, even if you have YouTube videos and odd sorts of things, I would bet money that you're going to have more and more doubters. You're going to have scientists coming up saying, you know, there was some gas that came up out of the ground and hallucinated everyone the world over, or an asteroid hit and caused some weird chemical situation. You know, we would start to have more and more theories that, uh, I guess, go against the common experience that we all had. But what I'm trying to express by this is, over time, I think, essentially, our Purple Haze experience would just be a subnote in history. It wouldn't be this experience that the world holds on to infinitely, saying... This was the moment that God visited humanity as a purple haze. That wouldn't be an eternal testament, I don't think. You know, just look at how many, uh, like, Holocaust deniers there are popping up in the world. And we're, what, 60, 70 years out of that? You know, there are still people, a lot, Holocaust survivors alive, and yet there's all these doubters out there. You know, in a hundred years from now, I bet half the world will doubt it. And that's a sad thing to say, but that's just the way things go. So in that way, because experience changes a person's worldview, but it never sticks, it never continues on in the human psyche forever, it's like we all have like that memento disease where we can't, as a humanity, as a, as a culture, as a, a race, we can't hold on to stuff, we can't hold on to memories, so they just kind of fall away. So at any rate, I at least like to hold my hand open to the suggestion that things were much more different than we conceived them to be. Because I think whenever we think about the past, we essentially think everything was the same, just, you know, maybe there was an ice age and things were colder. But with that flight of fancy, with holding that open, that's what makes, like, the Poseidon aspect of Atlantis really intriguing to me. Okay? Old civilization, not that interesting, but an old civilization ruled by the god of the sea. All right, all right, you got the 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 beginnings of an interesting story here that's all i have to say about that we got to get moving on our cork board so if atlantis is going to show up in the bible the first place to search is genesis chapter 10 that's known as the table of nations so this is right after the flood and the chronicler of genesis writes the descendants of noah's sons ham shem and japheth and out of these sons are a whole bunch of names of people that we can trace in some ways to be like the patriarchs, the forefathers of various tribes, various people groups. And sure enough, there's an interesting one right in the midst of it. So Japheth, one of Noah's sons, has a son named Javan. Here's Genesis chapter 10, verse 4. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanin. Verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Now, interesting subnote here about coastlands. That can also mean island peoples. It's just kind of a catch-all for people that are about the sea in their culture. So, okay, island seafaring people. We just got a list of names. That's one of our facts under Atlantis. Can any of these names fit or be linked to places that would fit under our Atlantis facts. Well, I'm going to make the case, yes. <laughs> First one is Kittim, okay? But I want you to hold on to that one for a while. It's kind of going to be a big reveal a little bit later. But the one we're going to labor and spend most of our time today on is Tarshish. Now, Tarshish shows up in the Old Testament 21 times. 
And it's kind of an interesting name because it seems to hold a lot of meaning in it. So it shows up these 21 times and it's really all over the place. We see from a reference, I believe in Exodus, that Tarshish can sometimes just be associated with the gem that we commonly call barrel. Sometimes they just say Tarshish when they're referring to this gem. Um, It's obviously also the name of a person. There's this Tarshish. We're going to look at another guy named Tarshish later. And apparently, it also is kind of like the Timbuktu of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's kind of a catch-all phrase for that place really far away. You know, sometimes we use Timbuktu as like, yeah, send him to Timbuktu. And even though Timbuktu is a real place, we just mean like, send him far away. So for instance, in the book of Jonah, we all know Jonah's story, right? When Jonah's trying to escape from God, he looks for a boat that's going to Tarshish. Now I've read some commentaries that suggest that those boats aren't going to a literal place of Tarshish. They're just going as far away as possible. It's as if Jonah was looking for a boat just to get as far off as possible from where God wanted him to be. Okay, what Tarshish clearly is not is the place called Tarsus, where the Apostle Paul comes from. That's a very historically reliable location. We know exactly where it is. Tarshish is not Tarsus. All right, scrap that one. And finally, Tarshish very much, in most of these 21 references, seems to be referring to a physical place. And we'll look at a couple of those passages here in a moment. As far as extra-biblically... There seems to be plenty of evidence and seems fair to suggest that a place that the Romans refer to as Tartasos is this Hebrew word Tarshish. Tartasos equals Tarshish. Okay? Now, as soon as I saw the word Tartasos, I immediately wondered, Tartasos sounds a whole lot like Tartarus, the Greek underworld. More on that a little bit later. Let's fly back to this Ezekiel passage that started us off. The passage I read at the beginning that talks about, you know, the sea place, it's going to be covered up by the waters and no one will be able to find it. That's referring to a place called Tyre. Now, Tyre is a well-known historical location. Tyre is located in what is now present-day Lebanon, a place just north of Israel. And we see Israel and Judah interacting with Tyre a lot in the Old Testament. They're big trade partners. Israel loved to get specifically cedar from them. And there's often treaties between kings of Israel and the kings of Tyre. Now, Tyre was not an island place, but it is often referred to in the Old Testament as like a, a coastal power. Here in Ezekiel 28, I'll just read the first few verses here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods as in the heart of the seas. Um, And it goes on from there. But again, you know, in the heart of the seas, it's referred to, you know, in association with seafaring. But again, Tyre can't be Atlantis because we know where Tyre is and it's not an island. But here's the fun part. Almost every time the location Tarshish is brought up in the Old Testament, it's connected with Tyre. And the two places are closely, closely associated and related. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste, without house or harbor. From the land of Kittim it is revealed to them. Be still, O habitants of the coast. Then later, in verse 6, referring to Tyre still, Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old? That's obviously referring to Tarshish here. Tarshish, a place that Tyre has to go to by sea, 
that is now laid waste that's from days of old. Now, a few verses later in verse 10, still referring to Tyre, cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. Okay, what do we see here? Tyre is called O daughter of Tarshish. And again, there's upwards of 10 or so passages that talk about Tarshish and Tyre trading with one another by boat, by sea. But here, specifically here, Isaiah 23.10, Tyre is called the daughter of Tarshish. And we know Tarshish has already fallen when it's here in this passage when God's prophesying for condemnation for destruction of Tyre, which does later happen in history. It almost has this idea that you know, maybe when Tarshish fell, wherever, whoever they were, some people fled and then went to Tyre and founded Tyre or something of that ilk. Oh, daughter of Tarshish. All right, so let's look at our five facts and see what we got. Does Tarshish fit any of these categories? Old, I think definitely. We definitely got that in this Isaiah passage and the Ezekiel passage. A seafaring people. Sounds like it. We might not be completely sure about that, but we will be in a moment. Natural disaster. We don't know what type of disaster at this point, but we know it's been destroyed. Poseidon? No, we don't really have a connection there yet. Uh, Wealthy? Okay, we've already mentioned Tarshish being connected with the gemstone barrel. And obviously they're a trade partner, so it sounds like they're wealthy. Let's double check that, though, by looking at 2 Chronicles 9.21. This is in a section where the chronicler is talking about King Solomon of Israel's wealth. And in this verse I'm about to read, it refers to Hiram. Hiram was the king of Tyre. So this is 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 21. For the king's ships that's Solomon, went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. That's Tyre. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Was Tarshish wealthy? You bet your bottom dollar they were. They got peacocks and apes and ivory and silver and gold in Tarshish. Wherever this place was, it had a bunch of natural resources. And I don't think I need to tell you, back in 1000 B.C., Natural resources are hard to come by. So go ahead and stick Tarshish up under wealthy, sea people, and old. Now, what about that natural disaster? Well, Psalm 48 talks about the ships of Tarshish and Tarshish being destroyed by an easterly wind. So, I say, natural disaster taking out Tarshish? Cue that one. All right. So that gives this place Tarshish, which, by the way, historians to this day are unsure of where Tarshish really was. So it's an unsolved mystery in and of itself, whether or not it was Atlantis. You almost want to give that as a sixth point here on our corkboard, that location unknown, see Atlantis and Tarshish. That gives us four out of five, but we still have that pesky Poseidon to deal with. Can we deal with him? Kind of. Obtusely. I don't know if it'll meet your muster or not, but... I'll give it a shot. We'll give it a shot. All right, here we go. Did Poseidon have a father? Answer, yes, Kronos, the Titan. Remember him? Crazy dude. Now, we don't see any references to Poseidon, as far as I know, in the Bible, but we do have a Hebrewization of Kronos. Well, Dante, what's the Hebrewization of Kronos? That would be the word Kittim. Going back to Genesis 10, the sons of Javan, among others, were listed Tarshish, and Kittim. Or, maybe we could translate that as Tartasos, the Roman word for that, and Kronos. Bum, bum, bum! Is that a good enough connection? Maybe not. Maybe you're just like, eh, names that sound similar. 
Not really buying that connection. All right, how about this one? That Roman place, Tartessos, which we think is the same as Tarshish, has a fair amount of Celtic references to it. And when the Celts talk about this Tartessos place, they say that is the realm of Endovelicus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is Endovelicus? Well, my friends, Endovelicus is the Celtic god of the underworld. So it really does sound like Tarshish equals Tartessos, which equals Tartarus. In which case, then, the sons of Javan, Javan being the son of Japheth, Japheth being the son of Noah, these sons would essentially be two pretty direct references to what we later know as Greek gods, two really strong Greek myths. And that's, that's a little weirder, no? But we're not done yet, and this is where it gets really weird and really intriguing. Now, we're about to look at two of the weirdest, mind-boggling passages in all of the Bible. But I hope you can connect the dots here. So, what you need to do here is, on a separate part of your corkboard, write the name Tyre, okay? And I want you to draw a line from Tyre downwards to the name Satan. So, in Ezekiel, just two chapters after we earlier read, we read at the beginning of this podcast from Ezekiel 26, two chapters later... God's still prophesying against the nation of Tyre. But all of a sudden, the prophecy turns from being about Tyre itself, the place, and then suddenly, it seems very evident that we're talking about Satan. Now, why Tyre is connected to Satan, I don't know if anyone knows. Maybe it's just a literary device Ezekiel's using here to tell the story of Satan or tell, to tell the story of sinful pride or that Tyre is acting in the same way Satan is. But whatever the reason, it is a strange passage, um, and I, I got to read at least the beginning here of it. So this is starting Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11, and going onwards. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond... Tarshish, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you, in the abundance of your trade. You were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. I brought fire out of your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Okay, he's talking about the king of Tyre, but then all of a sudden he says, you were in the Garden of Eden. You were my guardian cherub. Cherub being, you know, a type of angel. No, no. The king of Tyre, the literal king of Tyre, could not have been in the Garden of Eden unless he was like a vampire. He wasn't. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about Lucifer. And remember, Tyre is the daughter of Tarshish. Yeah, whatever, Dante. You're just using these literary metaphors and connecting dots that can't be connected. Maybe so. 
So I want you to draw a line from Satan down and connect it to the phrase, the Prince of Persia. No, I'm not referring to the horrible movie featuring Jake Gyllenhaal or, or the video game. In Daniel chapter 10, the prophet Daniel is praying, praying and praying and praying. And after 21 days, this angel appears to him and the angel says to him, sorry, Daniel, I heard your prayer 21 days ago, but I was held up by the prince of Persia and it took the archangel Michael to get me free of him so that I could come to you. Now, this is a weird window into the angelic kingdom, one we are rarely, if ever, given in the Bible that, you know, these angels are kind of overpowering one another. The Prince of Persia here is clearly a fancy name for either Satan or just a really strong demon. But for the sake of brevity, let's just say the Prince of Persia is AKA Satan. Why is that important? Because if we go to one more book, if we go to the book of Esther, which all takes place in Persia, we read this. Esther chapter one, verse 14. The men next to him, him being the king of Persia, were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miraz, Marsena, and Memekan, the seven princes of Persia. What a bow! Tarshish equals a prince of Persia. Prince of Persia equals Satan. Satan equals the king of Tyre. Tyre equals the daughter of Tarshish. Tarshish being the brother of Kittim, a fancy name for Kronos. What, 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 what? Okay, so Tarshish now more or less fits under every category that we have for Atlantis. The five facts. Tarshish is from of old. It had wealthy people in it. It was an island with seafaring people in it. It was ruined by a natural disaster and has connections to Poseidon and much more ominously, Satan himself. So I'll let you decide or come up with more facts and more pieces of information to decide whether this Tarshish is Atlantis or not. Before I go, though, I feel it necessary to state that there's a lot of people out there that do these biblical magic tricks, you know, where they find secret biblical codes or or they find weird modern meanings or prophecies out of things that, that don't make sense when you read them in context of the book of the Bible. And what I did today, obviously, I grabbed from a lot of books of the Bible and the Old Testament, and I grabbed them almost entirely out of context. In general, I think it's it's bad science, it's bad form to just take snippets of a piece of literature and then try to apply a meaning that the author never intended. Um, I want to be careful specifically, you know, I hold the, the Bible as sacred, I hold it as dear to my heart. I don't want to look at it and just toss it around for these little pieces of facts that are yummy to me. So in no way do I want to form a theology out of this idea of Atlantis. Uh, I'm just simply trying to have a good time with it today and, you know, have fun with the what if of could this possibly be Atlantis. So with that, uh, go in peace. I hope you had a fun time searching for Atlantis with me. See you next week. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. Hey, you know how sustainability is all of a sudden like the most popular buzzword out there? Like every one of my friends, I guess, is getting a master's in environmental sustainability all of a sudden? Well, here on the podcast, we also care about sustainability. And I want to ask you today, if you value this program at all, help our sustainability by doing at least one of three things, okay? Here they are. One, write a review on iTunes. 
Every review on iTunes helps bump our podcast up on the iTunes store. So the more reviews we get, the more eyeballs see the podcast, the more popular we'll be. So please help us out in that way by writing a review. Even if you don't like the show all that much, but you still listen to it, give us a three-star review. That's fine. Option two, multiply yourself. You know you don't want to just listen to me talk about Levitical Law all day and have no one in IRL to talk to about it, you know, to say, yo, that Dante's whack, man. You want to be able to tell that real person that Dante's whack. So if you have any friends that listen to podcasts, share this with them. Go out and multiply yourself. If we get tons of listeners, for sure we'll be able to keep this enterprise going for a long haul. And then finally, option three. If you haven't noticed... We have a donations page. You can donate to this podcast. I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty or anything like that. If you don't want to give, that's fine. But if you get value out of the program and you want to help me continue to do this, throw me a buck or two or five or a thousand or a million. That'd be great. You can find that at DanteStack.com slash donate or just DanteStack.com and find the donate tab quite easily. All right. See you next week.